I think facing my fear is the the feeling of me making a choice to face it that really like fires me up inside is that I'm actively choosing to do this, which is what allows me to kind of face it in a sense. It's not something that is overpowering me because I choose to take it head on, which is kind of a cool feeling is like you have a choice whether or not you can go after it or whether or not you can let the fear overcome you. And that option is what excites me. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Alana Myers-Taylor is a three-time Olympic medalist and a two-time world champion in bobsled. She's an accomplished athlete in multiple sports and played a pivotal role in breaking the gender barrier in the four-man bobsleigh event. In this episode, we discussed how she faces fear in a very dangerous sport and how this has helped her embrace stress and uncertainty. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, please go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up for my high-performance newsletter. In this newsletter, I provide you valuable resources and information to help you pursue audacious goals, thrive in uncertainty, and to live a healthy and fulfilled life. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. All right, Alana, great to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on, especially since you just moved to New York to resume training on ice. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I actually, with everything going on with COVID-19, I didn't think we'd actually have a chance to get on ice this winter. So to be up in Lake Placid to serve my quarantine time, uh, mandatory 14 days coming from Georgia, I'm actually just excited to have some semblance of normalcy and the fact that competing in Olympic level bobsled is normal for me. So it's good. Are you like in an apartment? Or are you like in Olympic, like a training facility, like on training grounds right now? So in Lake Placid, uh, first, it's a town of maybe 2,500 people. It's a very small town, but they have what's called the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. So what it is, basically, it's like dorms style living, dorm room, college dorms. You have a cafeteria, same as college, and then like you have your sports medicine, and then you have a weight room and a regular gym, as well as like our push track, which is a dry land track where you push bobsleds on a rail system. That's there. And so there's different training facilities and different training things there. But yeah, it's kind of like a dorm style type living. But right now, because I have my son with me, um, who's be eight months old, I'm staying off site. So I'm renting a place off site uh, mm. to allow me and to be able to be with him and everything like that. I gotcha. So is this, is this set up similar to Colorado Springs, just maybe a smaller version? Yes, it is okay. almost exactly like Colorado Springs, but half the size. <laughs> oh, wow. The push track. The push track takes up a good amount of space, and that's on their plot of land, but it's not even close to the size of what's in Colorado Springs generally. I gotcha. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really excited to to get to talk with you today because your story is pretty fascinating. I mean, you've done a lot of things. And even as I was researching more, there's a couple things that popped up. I'm just like, what? And I can't wait to talk about those, but you grew up in what seems to be a very athletic family. I mean, your dad was a pro football player. You grew up in Georgia. Is that where this like love of sport began? Somewhat. Um, I, I remember very young being at the Falcons train facility and seeing my dad there lifting and, and running and stuff like that. But for me, that didn't really make sense. You know, what made more sense to me is right above the Falcons facility where they used to practice in Swanee, Georgia, there was a McDonald's there. And so we could go get a happy meal and I could go play with Freddie the Falcon. And that's the extent of my understanding of athletics at that time was. <laughs> So, and then my dad was very methodical and my parents in general were very methodical into making sure we didn't get into organized sport too early. So I would see NFL games and NFL players and things like that, but it wasn't ever a discussion of this is what you're going to do. This is obviously I'm a a female. My aspiration was never to be in the NFL anyways. I I do know there are some women who have that goal, but it was never mine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, I would see that and it, you never put two and two together like that's what athletics is about or anything like that. Like for me at a young age, it's mostly just about playing outside and playing different games outside and kickball happened to be one of them, wiffle ball, stick ball, all these kind of things. So that's really where my athletics started in, in just playing outside. 
So when did you start playing organized sport? I started playing organized sport at age, it was either nine or eight, but it took me an entire year of begging my dad in order to let me sign up for softball. It was softball at the time. And I begged him for an entire year and he wouldn't let me sign up. He's like, no, 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 you're too young. You're too young. And then finally, after a year of nagging him, he let me sign up. Yeah, that's so interesting because in today's culture of early specialization, it seems like your dad was wise and was pushing back at an early age. Is there a reason he was doing that? Yeah, I think he's seen, you know, how serious sports can get and he didn't want us to get sucked into that kind of world. He wanted us to enjoy being a kid and wanted to Mm -hmm. enjoy sport in general. So he didn't really want to get into organized sports because he's seen how like sideways that can go. And, and, you know, since then I've become a coach and things like that. And I've seen people out there with five-year-olds, you know, screaming at five-year-olds for not getting plays right in softball games and things like that. Mm. So I think that's what he was afraid of. And that's why he kind of steered me and my sisters out of organized sports for a little bit. So it was just one sibling? I have an older sister and a younger sister and they both play sports and yeah. So what, we, what sports do they do? My older sister also played softball. Mm-hmm. We did softball, basketball, track and field, um, oh, wow. soccer at some point. But my younger sister, she's like, well, everybody's playing softball. I want to do something different. And she played volleyball. Um, oh, nice. And in Georgia, they're the same season in high school and things like that. So she was just trying to get out of a different mold. <laughs> nice. So you, you continued this pursuit of uh, softball and you were able to play softball at George Washington University, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And how was that experience? Oh boy. Uh, when they say do not pick a college because of a coach, they are absolutely right. And that's huh. why I picked George Washington. It's because I went there and the recruit trip and I loved the coach and I thought she was this, the most amazing person ever and decided to go to school. And then she left after my first year and I proceeded to have four coaches over the five years I was there. So it was a- four coaches. Yes. So that's it- rough. Yeah, not not a great college experience, but I did learn a lot. And I feel like the lessons I learned from my college experience definitely allowed me to become a leader. I was captain of my team every single year, but it was a lot of adversity. We were a new program starting up Division One from scratch, starting up. I was the first recruited athlete at the university. So I was put in a position, in a leadership position, and it really taught me a lot that would later come into handy now as a bobsled athlete, which is kind of crazy to think about. What does leadership mean to you? First, I've always thought as leadership as service. When you're putting a leadership role, you're there to help others achieve their goals and kind of that service mentality into doing whatever you can to help the group, the whole, achieve whatever goal we're going after. And so what it starts with for me is also setting an example, leading by example and and exemplifying the behaviors that you want other people to follow. So whether it's being the first one at a workout, the last one to leave, those types of behaviors. But also for me over the years, it's been really getting down to the nitty gritty and sitting with the different athletes on my teams and really talking with them and understanding what their needs are and how we can get together and accomplish whatever their needs are and use that to our greater good and accomplish a goal. Mm. So you were in a leadership role at an upstart softball program in a city that's I mean it's Washington DC right I mean it's known for leadership did you have any opportunities while you're there were you able to see anything in government that helped you out or was it just something that just was innate to you or did you have to study it and learn it I think it was partially innate but I think the biggest way I was able to gain more experienced leadership is just by doing it you know, because we were a young startup team, I made a lot of mistakes as a leader, but it kind of gave me room to fail because I didn't come into this established program. So in the established program, you generally would have a junior or senior as a leader and you would learn from them and then you would step into that role when you're an upperclassman, so to speak. But because I didn't have that opportunity, because I was a recruited athlete and, and most of the upperclassmen that came on the team were walk-ons, I was kind of in that leadership role. And I honestly learned how to lead and what my leadership style is by failing. So I guess you could call it failing up in a sense because I was going by the wing of my pants. I didn't know what it was like to play at a division one level, but nobody else on my team did either. So yeah. we we're all learning together and just trying to learn as much as I can from our coaches that we had as well. 
and other athletes picking their brains, things like that. And of course, calling my parents nonstop and saying, hey, I don't know what to do. And just did you ever want to quit? I never wanted to quit softball. thought about transferring at times. Um, yeah. My sophomore year, my actual sophomore year, we had a coaching abuse scandal. Our season oh, wow. ended up getting canceled in about February, late February, early March. Uh, so it just started. Yeah. We had played a couple tournaments, but fortunately, after that scandal and everything, they gave us all redshirt years back. The NCAA investigated it, everything, and we all got a redshirt year back, which is how I ended up with five years of eligibility, which I was injured anyways at that point. I ended up tearing the labrum in my shoulder as a result of everything that was going on. Most of our team was pretty injured and banged up. So even if we had wanted to try and compete the rest of the year, it physically wasn't possible. I think at that point, we got down to the point where we had only 11 players on the team, which on a softball team, a collegiate softball team, usually have 20 plus players. So to only have 11 and only have two healthy, and I was considered a healthy player and I've got a torn shoulder labrum. It was kind of at a point that they had to call it, but we were fortunate that we got reinstated for that year. Wow, that's pretty intense. I mean, now in today's NCAA culture, nobody would have blamed you for leaving. Mm-hmm. I think then, you know, you and I kind of kind of came up maybe a few years younger, but still like transferring was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now it's like, you know, it just, you're gone. Yeah, and, and uh, the different channels to transfer. You have the, yeah. I don't even know what they call it, but the portal. The portal. Yeah. Um, Whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, that, that wasn't an option. And, and for me, you know, going to college and playing college sports was always first and foremost about the academics and to be in a position where I had a full opportunity to have all my college paid for. And, and George Washington University is one of the most expensive schools in the country. Um, yes. So an opportunity and to have be at such a strong academic school, that was a major player into my decision. And I'm also one of those people, like if you start something, you finish. And when I started at George Washington, one of my major goals was to finish there and to create this program out of scratch and to be a part of something bigger than myself. And so all those reasons, I felt like I needed to stick it out. And I didn't want to go through the recruiting process again. It was brutal enough the first time. Mm. So I didn't want to go through all that. What did you study? Exercise science. Perfect. We have that in common. All right. (laughs) So you wrapped up. What year did you finish at George Washington? 2007. 2007. Yep. How did you end up in bobsled? I mean, because it's like you were good at softball. Yeah. And what's about to, what you're about to talk, I'm sorry. I just think this is just fascinating. Go ahead. So I actually played that summer professionally and Uh, all with the intention of trying to work my way back to the Olympic softball team and trying to get an opportunity because softball, the last Olympics they were going to be in was 2008. Um, And so I thought if I wanted to be an Olympian, I had to try and make that team or I had to make that team or else it just wasn't going to happen to me. So um, I had had an Olympic tryout earlier in my career, I think in like 2004, but it was like an absolute disaster. It was horrible. So I knew I wasn't going to make the team that way. So I thought maybe if I had a solid professional career, I could make the team that way. But lo and behold, professional career didn't go as well as I would have liked it to. Our owner and our team manager quit and coach quit in the middle of the season, which I didn't know you could actually do. That was news to me. But fortunately, our the league absorbed our team and we were able to finish the season. But at that point... After going through that, I was kind of like, uh, "You've had some bad luck with softball coaches." Yeah, yeah, it was really bad luck. And at that point, I was like, "I don't know if this is for me." My rookie season wasn't good enough to like get me back in cahoots with Olympic softball, so I kind of put that on the back burner. I actually had a couple offers. Uh, my mom's Italian by heritage, so I had a couple offers to go out there and maybe try and see if I could qualify for the Italian Olympic softball team, but it didn't feel right, so I kind of put softball on the back burner and was like, well, I'll go back to school, and I was actually preparing to go to medical school, and I was in class one day, and actually my mom had talked about bobsled years ago and said hey this is a sport you can try you know 
and she was even talking about stopping playing softball at that point, but I wasn't able to hear that. But she was like, you could try. They look for strong, fast, powerful athletes. Why don't you give this a try? And I was like, nah. But after softball, it ended so poorly. And one day when I'm sitting in this classroom and studying it was a chemistry classroom at the time. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm ready for my athletic career to be over. I decided to just Google it and email the coach and lo and behold, they invited me to try out on elite class in New York. What was the tryout like? What did you have to do? Cause I mean, you have no technical skill at this sport. No, it was very similar to a football combine actually. Really? So we not a 40 yard dash, but we run a 30 meter sprint and also a 60 meter sprint. You do a couple hop tests, a power clean, squat, a three-rep squat max, a shot, underhand forward shot toss. And I think at the time we actually did a bench press too, which doesn't have a lot of crossover to bobsled. So I, I don't know why we did that. But uh, c- certain tests like that just to kind of gauge how athletic a person is. Most people get into bobsled after college. So it's not something really, unless you grow up in Park City, Utah, or Lake Placid, New York, where our tracks are, it's not really something people grow up doing. So we always, always, and still are, if anybody's interested, still are looking for athletes. Uh, we're looking for athletes even for 2022 Olympics, and that's right around the corner. So we're always looking for athletes. And, and in my case, we were looking for athletic women, and I fit the bill. How about that? I mean, you are a power speed athlete. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of, oh, what's his name? It, uh, in Tennessee, one of your former coach strength coaches, Dr. Brad DeWeese. Brad DeWeese. Yep. Yeah, he just talks. He just talks about like a lot of the same physical qualities are looking for for somebody in bobsled is the same thing that they would look for like a sixty meter sprinter. Yep. Uh, just power, acceleration, lean body mass, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Like, so you did all of these things, and they're like, "Yep, she checks the box," and now you're in. Yep. What was your experience like the first time you actually like gripped this thing and you're running? I mean, what is that? I mean, because you're running downhill. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, and now we have all systems in place to kind of give you time to like learn how to push a sled. We didn't have a lot of systems in place when I started. So it's kind of like, here's a bobsled. You're on the ice, get in sled, figure it out, push it and go. And I think within the first two weeks of starting, I was supposed to race a selection race. Didn't end up racing because my back gave out on me because, you know, starting to bobsled and, and trying to figure all this stuff out when you're not used to doing any of this kind of hard on the body. Anyway, so my first trip on the hill, like I didn't know what I was doing at all. And I barely got into the sled because I kept telling you long jump in the sled, long jump in the sled. That's all you have to do. But I didn't long jump. So I was... <laughs> tried to figure four slide into the sled and that does not work. And it took me a while to like get out of that habit. And the other thing is we rely pretty heavily on running mechanics. It's it's, you use the basis of running mechanics to learn how to push a sled, but coming from softball, we didn't work on running mechanics. So I didn't have that basis. I didn't know how to dorsiflex. I didn't know any of that stuff. So it took me a while to really try and figure out technique, but I was, strong and fast and powerful so raw athleticism took over so i was still pushing decent times but it was an absolute train wreck i mean you're sprinting downhill mm-hmm. and then you're jumping into this contraption and how fast are you going at that point i want to say depending on the steep of it every track in the world is different and i don't know the conversion usually it's around 35 kilometers per hour sometimes it's 45 or so kilometers per hour at that point so it gets up to speed pretty quickly, though. And that's only, like, you get in the sled about 30 meters after you've started. So And you're the driver, right? Now I'm the driver. I started with the brakeman in the back, um, spent my first three years in the back of the sled, uh-huh. and then transitioned to a driver. Becoming a driver is a lot longer process, and I knew – and anybody can come in as a brakeman and make an Olympic team. That's why my teammate in 2014, Lauren Williams, granted she's like a superstar studman athlete, gold medalist in the 4x100 in London and, and you know silver medalist in the 100, and she's got all these accolades. But she was able to come in and make the Olympics and win a medal in six months just because Holy of that cow. athleticism and that raw ability. Is it scary the first time you go down that track? Yeah, but it's... I can't necessarily say it doesn't get less scary. Fear <laughs> changes. Fear changes when you start to get more knowledgeable about how bad things could actually be. 
But the cool thing about the sport is, is you know it, something bad could happen. You know it's terrifying, but you decide to do it anyway. It's like you face your fear on a daily basis, which is one of the coolest feelings to me, at least. So how do you face your fears? I mean, what gives you the courage to do that? Um, <laughs> what came to mind is like maybe something a little loose in <laughs> up here. Uh, but I think for me, it's part of, I love control. I'm a little bit of a control freak, but for okay. me, I think facing my fear is the, is the feeling of me making a choice to face it. That really like fires me up inside is that I'm actively choosing to do this, which is what allows me to kind of face it in a sense. It's not something that is overpowering me because I choose to take it head on which is kind of a cool feeling is like you have a choice whether or not you can go after it or whether or not you can let the fear overcome you. And that option is what excites me, even just having the option. And, and most of the time I'm all gung ho and, and we're going to do it. But, you know, I'd say uh, there are some things that I'm just not going to do. Bungee jumping is one of them. I'm not going to do that. But. <laughs> but you will hop in a sled going down ice, 35 to 40 kilometers an hour. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, well, 40, 35 to 45 miles per, or kilometers per hour when you hop in. Our top speeds are somewhere to 80 to close to 100 miles per hour down the track. Oh, my goodness. Have you ever wrecked? Yes. I've wrecked more times than I can count. So, What do you do when you wreck? So basically, most what happens is most of the time when you crash, it's just really bad ice burn, which is like, Rug burn, really bad rug burn, but you're on ice because it's the friction. So when you crash, the sled is going to go downhill regardless. So the sled will keep tossing back and forth and whatnot. And usually you're on your side for some portion of it. So you want to have your shoulder on the ice for a little portion and rotate, put your head on the ice and you rotate shoulder, head, shoulder. So you minimize the amount of burn. It sounds a lot worse than it is, but most people walk away from a crash just a little bit of ice burn. It looks a lot worse than it is most of the time. Is it like sliding into, is it like getting a really bad slide, like into uh, to second base or something? Or is it? Yes, I would say that. But it, unfortunately, like that's just a moment in time, depending on where you crash in the track. Like this is 20 curves of that, which is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you could just shred the skin. Yep. But we wear Kevlar vests underneath our. Kevlar. Yeah. So. <laughs> you. But it, it does a good job. Yeah. Holy cow. This is interesting. I'm learning a lot here today. So 2007, you decide to literally like put your life in your own hands and run down a, an ice track. And in 2010, you're in the Olympic Games. Yep. What was that like to become an Olympian? Oh, it was the dream of dreams come true. And, you know, it's still one of those kind of things that you think about it and you're like, man, I can't believe that actually happened. It, it's one of those things you dream about as a kid growing up that you think you can make it happen, but you don't really see how you can make it happen. To, so to actually walk out on that line, it was like a dream come true. And I enjoyed every single bit of my first Olympics, opening ceremonies, um, eating at the cafeteria, doing whatever I could with, you know, meeting different athletes, pin trading, all that stuff. I did everything on my first Olympics. So... I've trained athletes that have been Olympic gold medalists mm -hmm. and everybody's experience is a little bit different. You know, something that I learned early on is everybody's like, especially when you go to trials, you kind of see the disparity between the talent. Mm -hmm. Right. But even at the games, like most of my work was in track and field. There's like people that like are the best from their country and they just met the standard, but by no means are they going to make it and they know it. Yep. And so they have a great time. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? The frustrating thing sometimes coming from the U S uh -huh. because even within our selection for breakman in the U S side, it's way harder to make the U.S. team than to actually go there and compete. Like once you make the team, you know you're going to be in the fight for medals. Um, mm. Whether or not you get one is another story, but you know you're going to be you're going to have a shot because you made the U.S. team. Like that's how deep our team is. And time and time again, we are breakmen are making or not making a team off of a hundredth of a second. And the crazy thing is, is they could go on any other sled in the world and push really well and be their top athlete. 
but because they're on our team, they might be sixth in line, which is absolutely crazy. And which is the same circumstance in track and fields. You have people, especially in the hundred and 200 and sprinters who could easily on a different day, they could win an Olympic medal, but because they're in the U S and they missed out on trials, like they just not even on the team, which is insane. They'd be an international superstar from wherever they were, if they lived in another country. But that's interesting to me because you're saying that you literally walked on, so to speak, six months later. I mean, really quickly, you're on the team, but at the same time, it's depth. So yep. on a humble brag here, that's pretty cool yeah. uh, for you. Yeah. But <laughs> you, you get the bronze medal. Mm-hmm. What did it feel like? When you the first time you went down, you call it the track. What do you call it? Yep, the track. track. It was uh, Vancouver, right? Yep. What What was that feeling like? So Vancouver or Whistler, which is where the track is, is one of the fastest track in the world, mm. and it was kind of surreal that particular Olympics because earlier in the Olympics, the same day as opening ceremony, a luge athlete actually went down and he crashed and passed away. Oh um, so gosh. to have that to start. The Olympics and to know that on Olympic level ice, you go faster than you've ever gone before. The track is prepped really well. And and to know that sleds are reaching that top speed, it was pretty terrifying. And when you go down, when you get done with a run, there's a whole bunch of press circuits, right? And all the pilots, usually they'll tag the brakeman along with them, but the pilots will walk through there and answer questions. And so when on the first day of training, after the first run, there was somebody at the very front of that press circuit that when the pilots got out, they asked them all the same question. Are you afraid of this track? Like, is this a safe track? Is it dangerous? And all the pilots, there's 20 in the women's field, all 19 of them. They answered, no, we're not afraid. No, we're not afraid. No, we're not afraid. But one pilot that says they're afraid was my pilot. She's like, yeah, this is dangerous. This is crazy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm getting in the back of the sled. I don't know. (laughs) But you know, she handled it really well. Even if she was afraid, she handled it like a champion, obviously. And she didn't let it stop her from going down. The track was very smooth and she was having good training runs. So I was pretty confident, but she had, she tore her hamstring leading into the race. So it really made it interesting to see how we would finish because in training times, like I said, there's only 20 sleds and we're finishing 17th. We're finishing 16th in, in these training runs. And we're like, Oh, well, we don't know if we're going to have a shot at a medal now, but at the end of the day, it was just about going out there and putting on performance regardless of how fast the track was or how poorly we'd been training or anything like that. Wow. So I previously had Dr. Peter Haberl on. He's a senior mm-hmm. sports psychologist at the USOC, and he talks about um, – have you ever been through a training with him? Yep, with the USA rugby team, which oh – I am ex- so excited to ask about that later on. <laughs> I'll tell you why later. But Peter's actually a, a friend, and he talks about – I think his name is Peter Hoy, or Chris Hoy, mm-hmm. who was a um, multiple-time Olympic gold medalist in indoor cycling. And he said when he at the games, when it was like a, like a medal round, he felt like he was going to the gallows. So he was like literally feeling like he was going about to go get killed. Like that is the sensation that he had. But he talked about how he would grip the, the handlebars and feel his feet like in the clips. Like what did you do in those moments to center and to bring your attention where it needed to be? Yeah, so I'll tell you. From a brakeman to a driver's perspective, it was a little bit different. From a brakeman side, I knew the hard work had already been done. Like it was so hard to make that Olympic team that going to competing in Olympics was easy. So I really just took in the experience. I enjoyed every moment of it. I let the crowd, the noise of the crowd, like wash over me and really like just said, hey, you know what? I'm going to go and enjoy this race. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just going to enjoy every minute of it. So I didn't have that like, of course, you're you've got a little bit of butterflies and things like that, but it wasn't nearly the same. I was so excited the entire time as a brakeman that you're just like, Oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. Like (laughs) even just to compete, you're like, nobody could tell me anything. I'm just going to go out there and enjoy this for everything it's worth. Cause at that point too, you're like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be back here. I'm going to (laughs) just do what I can to have fun. But as a driver, it is more of that description of going into the gallows it was funny me and my husband were watching a promo the other day from Pyeongchang and it was inside the 
scenes of the locker room before we head out. And I was like, oh my gosh, the feeling is overcoming me again of what that feels like. Like so much tension and so much built up into that one moment where you're about to step on the line. It is insane. And like that pit of your stomach, like you're getting ready for this battle. And at a moment, something's going to happen and it's going to could change your, the rest of your entire life. But you got to act like, the green lights going off. You have to go. There's no other choice here. You're just going to go and you're going to give everything to it. So it's a really weird, crazy feeling. But at the same time, I kind of live for that moment too. I got chills all the way up and down my legs. Yeah, That was awesome. No, I could feel that. So stress can be either facilitating or debilitating. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me as if the stress of the moment, because it's all stress, Yep, facilitated your performance. Yep. And I, I really do try and use it because I realized early on is that if I didn't embrace it, if I let, you know, at the Olympics, at the start line, there's thousands of people at the start line cheering uh, or booing in some cases, <laughs> depending on what you're doing. And, you know, you could either use that and use it as fuel or let it overcome you and let it consume you. And I choose to use it as fuel. And that's what my mom has always told me is like when you feel those butterflies in the pit of your stomach, like that's you being excited and you're excited because it's something that matters to you. If you didn't care about the outcome, you wouldn't be nearly as nervous. So if you use that fuel, it's going to allow you to propel yourself to new heights. And, And that's kind of what I try and do. I embrace it. And so now I'm getting on in years in the sport and stuff like that. There'll be races where you don't have that feeling and that's when you worry. You're like, oh my gosh, I don't feel nervous for this. Am I going to be ready? Am I going to be prepared? Because you're so used to that kind of feeling. Do you use any type of like breathing or any type of exercises to ramp up your nervous system? So driving is tricky because you've got, you've got the push, which is like 30 meters of all out, like the most physical thing you could ever think of doing for five seconds of pushing, you are going as hard as you can. And it's like, if you watch some of the guys, there's like spit flying and screaming and yelling to prepare for this and stuff like that. But as a driver, then you have to load in the sled. And the key to driving is, it's kind of like archery or anything like that. You need to be as calm as possible. So it's this juxtaposition between that fired upness and then calming your nervous system down as slowly as possible. So once I'm going to the line, once I'm preparing, I really gauge my heart rate. I actually put my hands underneath my armpits to be able to feel my heart rate and feel where I'm going. And I'm usually repeating some kind of mantra. For me, a lot of times it's a prayer and just repeating it as I go to the line. But then really just making sure my heart rate is jacked up enough at the start. But once I load in the sled, I have to try and breathe deeply and calm myself down as much as possible. Mm, I love this. This is like, to me, like, I hope the listeners today are getting some really good information on this because whether it's on the Olympic ice or everybody goes through something very, very stressful Mm -hmm. or they have a pivotal moment or an opportunity that they want to take advantage of a job interview. And the things that you're talking about, we can really all use in those situations. You want to be excited. You know, one of the things that Peter talks about and something that I've used is like when I get amped up to speak to a group or for something very critical, I use that. And then I try to focus on whatever I try to bring my focus, like a diffuse light to like just a laser. So it's like instead of a bulb, it's a laser. And then I think about maybe the first sentence or the next word. Yep. But, um, is it when you're going down, I mean, you're literally carving. So how do you, do you guys use simulators or virtual reality or anything like that? No, we haven't been able to find simulators or virtual reality that really would mimic what we do. So most of it is visual work. Most of it is me, you know, sitting down, usually my eyes closed and feeling and, and like visualizing what I actually see in a curve. And then you'll see, if you watch a bobsled race, you'll see the drivers moving around and doing all these weird things as hands. It's called mine runs. And we're actually mimicking what our steers would be like when we're in the sled. And sometimes like, yes, you're in a seated position. Uh, my head is a little bit above the sled so I can see out, but that's pretty much it. The rest of me is underneath and I have a steering mechanism underneath. 
but I'm sitting in a seated position. My legs are straight and things like that. And we've got a little seat in there for a driver. But for the most part, you're driving the sleds. So when you look at a sled, you're like, oh, it's in that position. Why as a driver, would you be moving your hands up as a mine run and stuff? It's because we're trying to mimic what it feels like to go on a curve. When you turn on your side, yeah. Yeah. So like I will actually, if I'm doing a mine run and you're watching and sometimes they'll play these uh, before the race starts or whatever, and drivers are like this, the drivers like this, (laughs) just moving back and forth. And it's because we're trying as best as we can to mimic what that feeling of being up on a curve is like. Wow. Is it just a wheel? No. um, So it's a pulley system. So Uh there's two rings in the shape of a D. You pull, you hold the straight part of the D. They're called D rings and they attach to ropes in front of the sled, which attach to our steering mechanism, steering mechanism. And then they attach down to our axle and our runners, which are our blades. And so if you want to go left, you pull the left D ring towards you and it moves the runners to the left. If you want to go right, pull the right D ring towards you, moves runners to the right. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. So 2010 Winter Olympics, bronze medal. Mm -hmm. Then you go to Sochi, Mm -hmm. get the silver medal, and then rugby. Yes. So, like, what the heck? Rugby, first of all, rugby sevens is brutal. My friend was the high-performance director for the Canadian team, and it is a brutal sport. Yeah. You are truly a power athlete on the ice. What the heck possessed you to go torture yourself like that? So rugby sevens players and bobsledders have a lot physically in common. And if we could figure out a partnership between the two sports, as far as whether it's just the U.S. or even other countries, if they could figure out how to share athletes, it would service both sports greatly. Because it's funny, a scrum position is the same position you get in to hit a bobsled. Like there's a lot of similarities between the two, but anyway, so I was out in Chula Vista during the summers for bobsled from May to about October. There's no ice anywhere in the world. So we just do dry land training, running and lifting. We sprint like Olympic sprinters and lift like Olympic lifters. That's pretty much how we train. So when I was out in Chula Vista in 2013, they were like, wow, you're one heck of an athlete. Coach saw me and he's like, why don't you try rugby? I was like, well, I'm kind of busy at the moment. Uh, (laughs) I'll give it a try after. And lo and behold, after the games, um, I was pretty disappointed with my performance at the games. So I was just looking for something else to do, something else to throw my energy towards and called them up and and called up USA Rugby. And they're like, well, sure. Why don't you come on out? And next thing you know, I'm I think like a week after the games ended, I was out there with the U.S. rugby team figuring out how to do this. And then I stayed out there for a little bit while learned as much as I could and then actually ended up playing in, in two caps with the U S rugby team. Oh my gosh. I mean, that is like a, like some, you must be just a freaking amazing athlete because one of my, a guy that I just worked with, I mean, he was like, he was head of the Argentinian national rugby team. So I I really got to know the sport pretty well, Mm -hmm. but that is a very demanding sport. Did your body just get beat up doing that? Actually, it wasn't too bad because one thing is that I'm very strong and I was very strong for a rugby player too. Like we would get in the weight room and I was like, just, mm. you know, I was just putting a school on yeah. uh, as far as strength goes. Because for bobsled, we train our strength. Um, and yeah. for rugby, because you're on the field longer and stuff, you don't have that same type of strength and they're not used to training it. So strength wise, I could go toe to toe with anybody and I could hit people because I've been hitting bobsleds. I've been pushing sleds for so long. So I could do all that stuff. So that wasn't a problem. Um, More of the conditioning was the problem, but you know, we just tried to work on it slowly and surely and get that kind of conditioning and and figure it out from there. But it was a lot of fun. I, I loved it but it did take a lot of learning and I can't say I really figured it out fully. Um, now that I've been outside of it and watched a lot of more games and actually like had a little bit more time behind me, I'm like, okay, I, I figured this rugby thing out, but you know, while you're in the middle of it, it just feels like everything's moving a thousand miles per hour. Wow. That is so impressive. Now you said you were disappointed in 2014. You guys won the silver. What was disappointing about it? So I was leading the race for the first day in bobsled. Olympic races are two days, four runs. You do two runs each day. And so I was leading the race going into the second day. And 
you know, a lot had happened at Olympics. My sled completely broke, busted into pieces, and we had to get a loaner sled and scrap it for parts and then put my sled back together. So I was physically and mentally fried at this point. It was a pretty bad situation. And so to be in that position to like take a lead after the first day and then to lose it on the second day, it, it was a pretty heavy games for me. And mm-hmm. it wasn't so much, I don't feel like I wasn't disappointed in the silver medal and not winning a gold medal. Like you, I've won plenty of races, but it was more the performance itself that was so disappointing because I got in a situation, I made a major mistake and it cost me a lot of time. But the reason I got into that situation where I made a major mistake is because at that point, I didn't feel like I took enough responsibility for my athletic career as a pilot. When I was thinking in my sled and, and we usually have these different cues and different lines we tell ourselves when we're going down the track, the voice inside my head was my coach's. It wasn't my own. And so when I made a mistake, when I got into trouble, I wasn't using my own brain to try and figure out how to get myself out of it. I was relying on what my coach had told me. And that's what really bothered me about that performance is because I didn't take ownership of it because I had relied so much on other people telling me what to do. And so after that point, then I really took responsibility and I really made sure the voice inside my head, every time I'm in the slide is my own voice. Mm, I've never thought about that before. So I've, you know, in coaching, we talk about taking somebody from a point of uh, unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. So they don't know what they're doing wrong. Now they know what they're doing wrong to conscious competence to unconscious competence. So it seems to me as if like you hadn't made that switch from conscious competence to unconscious competence, maybe where like you just weren't even, it was just happening under your control, maybe. Yep. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. And, you know, I've worked with a sports psychologist a lot since then, but it's really part of that, like, relying on your coach to be the expert, which you should. But at some point as an athlete, you still have to take responsibility for your own career. You still need to be a student of the game and and the student of your athletic event and know it inside and out. So when you are in a situation, like your coach can't do anything for you, that you're able to guide yourself and take the reins literally and get yourself out of precarious situations. So in 2015 though, Mm -hmm. something pretty historic happened. Yep. And so without the disappointment in 2014, 2015 wouldn't have happened. That's a crazy thing. So in 2015, I became the first U S woman to win a world championship and we won it in Germany, which is historically just dominated by German. I think every other medal outside of mine in bobsled was a German medal or something like that. Wow. Maybe they had a bronze in, in men's two man or something like that, but definitely no other winners. Um, that's how dominant Germany is in our sport traditionally. So, and on their home tracks, um, they're pretty dominant. So winning that medal or winning that championship was really just a result of me having that process of taking ownership of my sled and making sure that voice that I heard was mine and it really took a lot of work with the sports psychologist is figuring out what cues work for me um, synthesizing whatever the information a coach is giving me and really breaking it down so I can digest it when it's in my when I'm in my sled you did it in Germany mm-hmm. holy cow I didn't I just hadn't put that together until you just said it what was that like to do were they respectful of your I mean they must have known how historic that was oh yeah and without a doubt the German fans are awesome. Germany's where sports really, really big. So at that world championships, we've got like over 30,000 people at the world championships and you know, you're, you're like a rock star out there. So to win there was really pretty awesome. And it's funny, the interviewer um, after the race, he's like, Oh, you just won a world championship. Is your president going to call you? I was like, <laughs> no, he doesn't know this just happened, but I, <laughs> you know, their world champions are getting phone calls from their prime minister yeah. and stuff like that. And I was like, no, they don't know this happened. And, and it's funny too, because also that year there's like, as far as winter sport, there's like all these other sports and they're winning world championships and stuff like that. Women's hockey won a world championship, all this stuff going on. And I'm like, yeah, no, our, our president isn't following the bobsled race, but thanks. <laughs> wow. You know, I understand what you're talking about because I'll never forget the first time I went to a world championship event in track athletics, you know, here in the States, you know, you go to a college track meet and it's like, 
so-so. And then you go overseas and it's like, you know, a throws event. You got the whole stadium of 50 something thousand people clapping hands. And it's just like, I, I, I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but the sports, you know, but every four years, America like falls in love. You know what I'm saying? Like this passion is rekindled and every, you know, we're watching the Olympics at whatever time it comes on. And, but that is such an amazing accomplishment. And would you say that was kind of your crowning achievement so far? No, really. <laughs> My crowning achievement, I would say, in 2014, they passed a rule that allowed women to compete in four-man discipline. So traditionally, bobsled has had multiple disciplines, two-man and four-man, but only men have been allowed to do two-man and four-man. Women's bobsled didn't even get into the Olympics until 2002, but it was restricted just to the two-man event. So since 2002. Women have only had one chance to medal at the Olympics, whereas men have had two races, so two opportunities. So I've always wanted this opportunity to compete. And finally, they passed a rule in 2014 that allowed us to have the opportunity. And so after fighting for it for so long, I finally jumped at the chance and got in a sled, got in a four-man sled and made the U.S. national team my first time driving a four-man. And so I made the men's national team. So that was probably my biggest yes. And one that of, is so uh, cool because of what it actually meant. And it actually uh, put it on a scale that they had to reckon with it. They had to try and figure out how women would work in this sport. And it actually led to them giving women another medal opportunity. It's monobob, which is one person in the sled, not nearly as fun as four man, but it does give us two medal opportunities in this upcoming Olympics in 2022. Wow. And you were part of that historic event. Wow. That is so fantastic. Were you welcomed by your male counterparts? No. <laughs> hmm. No. <laughs> did you no. earn their respect? After after I won the race, I did. And bobsled is kind of a little bit like the bachelor until we get to the national team. Before the national team's made, like it's basically drivers asking brakemen to race with them. Like, here, take my rose. Will you will you slide with me and stuff? And so <laughs> I couldn't get anybody to slide with me. But eventually, my husband, who's also a bobsledder, um, he agreed. He was coaching at Altus at the time. And I talked him into coming up to Utah to actually push me and he agreed to and once he agreed to then two other guys decided they'd push with me and so lo and behold put this team together and, and made it squad but before then before my husband had agreed to go on like we were struggling to find athletes wait a second so how long had it been since your husband had pushed or been in a in a bit of sled oh um well he had gone for the 2014 team and hadn't didn't make that team and so it only He'd only lost one season because it was right. It was that next season starting in October where he came back to push me. I love this. You you got your husband involved. That's that's dude. I would <laughs> if my wife called me, I'd have to figure out a way to get it done. Uh, that's a lot of pressure there. So let me ask you this: What is it? I mean, you are a high performer. You are the epitome of a high performer. What does high performance mean to you? Well, I think high performance, and this is a, que- a good question to ask, especially when we're looking at hiring high performance directors and things like that. And wh- how I look at it is it's really trying to maximize your performance in all possible ways. And I think the thing I keep in mind is that maximizing your performance doesn't mean going out there and winning a gold medal every time. It means putting yourself in the position to win a gold medal. For me, it's everything from maximizing sleep, recovery, nutrition, to our actual day-to-day workouts, but also the day-to-day in between. Like when we're traveling, I want to maximize how we travel and those different things to make sure we're getting the most out of it. And so I feel like sometimes my idea of high performance, going to that minute of detail, sometimes rubs people the wrong way. But you know, I don't want to take any chances. If there's something I can control, if there's something that I can manage that will lead into a high performance or lead into putting me in a position to win a gold medal, then I'm going to take care of it off the table. I love it. So does this trickle over into your personal life at all? For some aspects, yes. Others, no. I realized I started out parenting more of a high performance mindset. Like we're going to maximize that everything. And I, and I realized that's not my kid. So, um, and that's not how parenting works, you know? So trying to maximize the perfect schedule for your child is 
I mean, you know, that's not how this works. <laughs> no, <laughs> they're going to tell you what their schedule is. So yes. And, and, and on that note, I'm so thankful that you found time for this. Oh, because I know you're very busy and and you're a mother and there's a whole lot of things going on. Yeah, but uh, I appreciate you having me and and sharing our stories. But so, yeah. But I think from like a work standpoint, because I I've worked throughout my entire athletic career odd jobs here and there. I think it is something I approach it from a high performance standpoint. Like we have goals, we have objectives we want to accomplish. How can we maximize everything we're doing in order to accomplish that goal or that objective? So you're on the latter part of your career, not the beginning of the career. Let's just put it that way, right? What's next for you whenever whenever it's time to hang up? What do you call it? Your spikes? Yeah, I guess. Hang up with spikes. And so I really thought at one point my end goal was to become the CEO of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Um, That's the end goal. How I get there, I'm not quite sure yet. And what that actually looks like, I'm not quite sure. So I, for the longest time, had a passion for working at the elite level. But now with having a kid and with just being out in the community, I am starting to develop more of a passion for working at the grassroots level um, and how much really good can be done at that level. So now I'm really not quite sure what it looks like. I'll stay in sport for sure, but what exact level, it's still a work in progress. But I think the biggest thing is just going to be, it's the same as like what led me to bobsled is following what really drives me and following what I'm really passionate about. So I've worked for the IOC before and I thought that was my end goal is like, Oh, I want to work for the IOC. Cause you hear it's the organization, it's the international Olympic committee. That's it. But then when I got there and was actually working with it, I didn't like it at all. And so to be in that situation, it's really started me to think, well, is that, my original end goal, really what I want to do. Um, is there something else I'm more passionate about? And and it's really going to be a work in progress after that point, figuring it out. Hmm. I'm excited to see what you end up doing because I have a feeling whatever it is, you are going to absolutely dominate. Last couple of things, where can people find you and how can they support you? So on social media, it's Alana Myers-Taylor, M-E-Y-E-R-S or Alana Myers-Taylor, E-L-A-N-A-M-E-Y-E-R-S-T-A-Y-L-O-R. On Instagram and Facebook, you can find me, E-A-M Slider24 on Twitter. And usually I'm, nowadays I'm a little bit slower uh, responding with the with the eight-month-old, but usually I'll, I'll respond to you eventually. And I do have a website, ElanaMyersUSA.com. Um, you can always find me there, reach out to me. I'm pretty much an open book. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I am so excited to share this with everybody. I learned a lot and I think everybody's really just going to be, we're just so thankful that you came on. Thanks thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, sign up for my high performance newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Quorum, Twitter at Eric Quorum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn.